This is a Federal News Network podcast. The holiday season is just a memory now as winter settles in. Also in the rearview mirror is the combined federal campaign. Turns out for the National Capital Region, federal employees crushed it with donations exceeding the goal. For details, the CFC National Capital Region Chairman, Vince McConey. Vince, good to have you back. Tom, thanks for having me back to talk about uh, how we did this year, which was, it was very strong. We're very pleased. So give us some of the specifics. What was the goal? How much have we raised so far? So we set a goal, low goal. It was $35 million because we, we really didn't know how the year was going to uh, roll out for everybody with the, the pandemic impacting folks. And, uh, but we did set more of a aggressive goal with our, our board of directors. We, we had hoped to meet or exceed what we did the prior year. And we did that. In 2020, we raised $37.2 million. This year, we raised $37.2 three million dollars so it was a slight increase not a huge increase we think that may get a little bit higher maybe get closer to 37.4 but we did better than the year before which was exceptional and and during the pandemic period we've increased contributions through the cfc to charities by nine percent in the last two years which is pretty impressive given the impacts that uh, that it's had on everybody well, maybe it's that federal employees didn't get laid off like those in other industries and other domains. And it sounds like federal employees felt they could dig deep to give because they yes. do have assured jobs. You know, one thing with federal employees, whenever these these issues hit, these you know impacts hit, disasters hit, we dig as deep as we can because uh, we've got brothers and sisters who are federal employees all around the country, and they're impacted. And we understand that we're helping them and we're helping their neighbors when we, when we contribute through the CFC, when we volunteer. And frankly, you know, many, many employees are on the front line, so they see every day the impact of, of how a charity helps. Now, fundraising is a heartfelt type of function, whether you are giving or whether you are soliciting gives, but there is also some data behind manner in which people give, channels by which they choose to give. And so you can get pretty scientific about it. I mean, there are people that specialize. I know you've got a day job at, the, at a federal agency, but what is the data telling you about the manner in which people gave, the channels they chose to give through online, cash, payroll deduction, that kind of thing? When I started doing this 10, 15 years ago, and I've been engaged with CFC for a long time, there weren't as many ways to give directly to, to organizations. Obviously, we all remember we used to get you know direct mail solicitations, particularly around the holiday season from organizations that we may have given to before, others who bought our names. Well, really what's changed um, the framework for us is social media. So between social media and the opportunity for charities to reach donors directly through email and electronic means, which are a lot cheaper, we've got competition. So we saw uh, as, as some of these medias were um, really uh, coming to bear, and frankly, you know, everyone on Facebook, you'll see people are doing fundraisers for birthdays and everything. That's our competition, uh, and we take that very seriously. And so we've upped our game and how we reach employees, not just through traditional methods like an email that comes to an agency, but talking about the stories of federal employees making a difference on social media, on um, Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, um, getting the stories out and encouraging people to give and encouraging people to tell their stories as well. And that's been very effective for us. Because in some ways you're, you are competing with charities that have television budgets and you see all these sob yes. stories around Christmas time from various charities around the world even. So the 
competitive field is, is pretty broad, isn't it? It is. And, and that's not going to change. Um, but I will tell you one thing that was really cool. And I think I mentioned this the last time we chatted. Our Giving Tuesday, so the, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving has been set aside as the day to think about um, giving and charitable giving and making a gift to your community uh, in the holiday spirit. We raised over 2.35 million that day, which was a record. And we had 2000 volunteers hours pledged in that day. So that's one of those times where we wrote on something else that was going on and made a big deal about it with federal employees and then agencies and on social media. And it, it turned out, I mean, we were, we were absolutely thrilled at the contributions that we received on that one day. And the last two days of the campaign, we raised $4 million. Um, and that was in January. So that's people who are giving not because of tax purposes, but they're giving because they want to give through the combined federal campaign. And that, you know, that $4 million is 10% of what we, you know, more than 10% of what we raised. So it really does show that there is interest and people are doing this because they care. We're speaking with Vince McConey, chairman of the National Capital Region Coordinating Committee for the combined federal campaign. And what statistics do you have on numbers of people actually giving? You know, there's a theory that the best campaigns have the broadest base of giving, even if it's five dollars versus the million dollar people. So our average gift is eight hundred dollars in the national capital area. Um, we need to take a look at how that compares to um, uh, to uh, other workplace giving campaigns, which we would benchmark, uh, frankly, to see how we compare in the national capital area to the rest of the nation in terms of that average gift. I think we would probably skew a little bit high. Um, there compared to others in the average gift. Um, and certainly, you know, it, 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 our campaign is cert- certainly compressed. Uh, but one thing we're going to be doing this month is also taking a look at, at what national giving rates were overall and see how we compare to those, see if there's any lessons we can learn. I'll tell you one area where um, we, we saw a dip, just like everyone else, was in volunteer hours. A couple of years ago, we were uh, we were having federal employees mark about 70,000 volunteer hours that they would contribute through the campaign. Right now, we're down at about 48,000 um, hours. So we are um, yeah, maybe a little bit more than that, but we're down. Um, a lot of that, of course, is due to the pandemic and the fact that we can't do those in-person volunteer activities that, that we used to or do them in the same way. So we're hoping um, to find better ways and different ways to talk about how employees can not just give dollars, but give up their time and talent as well this year. Um, We've got a little bit more to learn in that area. But I'll tell you what, if you combine the volunteer hours that were uh, contributed and the dollars, we're close to $39 million in contributions with this campaign in total if you monetize those volunteer hours. An 800 average gift seems high to me. That seems like a pretty good darn Christmas donation to make. and It is. And that's the power of giving through payroll deductions. So you're given, you know, maybe 10 or $15 a pay period or $20 a pay period. And that all adds up. And that's what makes a difference to charities. And that's why they like the campaign. And do we have any sense of how many federal employees, say, if there's 300,000 in the national capital region, roughly, did 299,000 of them give? Or do do you track that number? We do track that number. We don't have it for this year. And Tom, I'd have to look it up even for last year to see how our participation rate was. Um, participation rate, frankly, to be very honest with you, is is more important of a factor to me than those eight or nine hundred dollar gifts. Because I understand if someone is new to the federal government, they start giving five dollars, they'll grow in the ability with pay and through time to give much more. So we are focusing on new donors through the campaign. Um, 
younger employees in the federal government who may not have um, the time that you know people like I've had uh, as federal employees and sort of built that tradition. We're trying to continue the tradition of the campaign, which given that this is the 60th anniversary of CFC, um, President Kennedy um, uh, authorized it uh, in 1961. Um, it, we looked at this as an opportunity to do some fun things and really to continue those traditions with federal employees. Now, will you chair the National Capital Region again next year or for 2022? I will. I hope if the board reelects, both myself and my co-chair will continue to lead, but there are fantastic people on our board of directors from a variety of agencies and any person um, on that board is is uh, committed, concerned, and wants to make a difference. And for the first time, we have retirees on the board as well to help us do outreach to retirees who live in this area. And it takes real time. It's not just a ceremonial type of job, is it? It takes a lot of time. Um, yesterday, I spent a couple hours emailing charities to encourage them to apply to the campaign uh, this year so that we can get even more charities participating locally. And by the way, is there anything that an individual charity can do to get it, its, its contributions up? Time is perfect. First of all, they need to be in the campaign. So you got to you got to be in there to play. And the application process goes till uh, February 28th. I think there's an early bird discount for charities that apply by January 31st. It's easy. All they need to people uh, charities need to go to givecfc.org and they can follow uh, along all the guidance and information so that they can get registered for the 22 campaign. Vince McConey is chairman of the National Capital Region Coordinating Committee of the Combined Federal Campaign. Thanks so much. Thank you so very much. And good luck in the year ahead. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. With Target Red Card, you'll save 5% every day, in-store and online. Find the red card that's right for you, whether it's debit, credit, or Target's new Red Card Reloadable, which doesn't require an existing bank account or credit check. With Target Red Card, you'll get exclusive deals and free shipping on most items. Visit Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. It's always a great day to save. Restrictions apply.